Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. He is Nevada Foundation Professor in the Behavioral Analysis Program at the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada. He is an author of 44 books and nearly 600 scientific articles. His career has focused on uh, an analysis of the nature of human language and cognition and the application of this to the understanding and alleviation of human suffering. He is the developer of relational frame theory, an account of human higher cognition, and has guided its extension to acceptance and commitment therapy, a popular evidence-based form of psychotherapy that uses mindfulness, acceptance, and values-based methods. His most recent books include uh, Evolution and Contextual Behavioral Science, with his co-author, Dr. David Sloan Wilson, who I already had on the show, and uh, a liberated mind, how to pivot toward what matters. So, Dr. Hayes, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you on. It's a pleasure for me, too, and I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Okay, great. So, I mean, as we were talking before we started recording, uh, I was saying that I already had Dr. Sloan Wilson on the show and we talked a little bit about your book, Evolution and Contextual Behavioral Science, but we focused a little bit more on the evolutionary side of things because it's basically his expertise, right? Uh, and today I would like to focus with you a little bit more on the contextual behavioral science aspect of things. But first of all, and since basically the, bo uh, the book includes the two topics, uh, I would first maybe like to ask you, uh, in what ways did uh, evolutionary psychology change? If it did so, because I'm not sure if it did change anything, but basically your approach to your clinical and your academic work. Well, evolutionary thinking has had a profound impact. Evolutionary psychology uh, came out of, of the gates, meaning something in most people's minds, I think, uh, pretty specific, massive modularity and th things of that kind. I think you're seeing that break down. I think people are, are bringing evolutionary accounts to psychology. And so if you take evolutionary psychology to be a broader uh, approach, which I, I think you should, of applying modern evolutionary science you know, to the actions of whole organisms interacting with their world and, and considering that world in terms of evolutionary principles, uh, you know, looking at uh, the history and situations they're in, but over multiple time frames and trying to answer Tinbergen's four questions that you, you ask of any evolutionary account. You know, if you do that to me, you're an evolutionary psychologist. And, um, Oddly, I'm out of a wing that uh, where variation and selection within the lifetime of the individual, in part because of the gene-centric era that we went through in evolutionary science, was uh, not only not considered, but was actively ruled out as relevant to an evolutionary account. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, well, that has passed now, not in everybody's minds, but we know that the um, Epigenetic relation, uh, uh, regulation of gene expression is very much 
uh, in tune with uh, environment and behavior. And there's multiple systems. I was just reading two weeks ago about how there's now have clear evidence with RNA being regulated also by epigenetic uh, factors, not even clear yet what the name is for that. So, uh, so what we're doing right now, for example, what we're doing right now, this conversation, uh, we have data with, you know, 15 minutes of meditation can up or down uh, regulate about 2% of your genome. If you have eight weeks of meditation, this is Herb Benson's work uh, out of Harvard, 7% of your genome. I mean, the idea, and by the way, really good animal models where even uh, genetic accommodation is influenced by the degree to which that's true. And so time's up. I mean, we need a full, well-rounded evolutionary account, and that includes culture. We're comfortable with that. Genes and memes, you know, came in. But not just that, it includes, uh, you know, cognition, emotion, behavior, environment. Uh, and so the work of people like Eva Jablanka and stuff like that has sort of busted down the walls. But things are moving very fast. And uh, it's uh, thinking in this way has sort of uh, profoundly altered what I do, including what I do uh, clinically, what I do with uh, clients who are suffering. You can apply evolutionary principles directly to your next session if you're a psychotherapist. And in fact, I think therapists have been applied evolutionary scientists all along. They just didn't know it. In the same way that parents have been using, for example, direct contingencies all along without even knowing it. You don't have to know about reinforcement for reinforcement to operate. You don't have to know about variation selection processes on other dimensions for them to operate. So let's see if we can get our science lined up with uh, the kind of work that people want us to do as, as behavioral science and as pe helping professions. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, so you refer to certain aspects of the environment and how the environment might influence even a genetic expression via epigenetic phenomena and mechanisms and things like that. And in your book you also refer to things like symbolism and language and learning and things like that. So, uh, and it's interesting because uh, some people have been talking about, including Dr. Sloan Wilson, about possibly uh, coming up with a, with what they call a, an extended evolutionary synthesis for evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology. I mean, all things that include basically evolutionary theory. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I mean, on the other hand, uh, and since you refer to epigenetics, just to be fair here, isn't it the case that maybe it's uh, um, a very precocious or early discipline and particularly in humans, isn't it the case that maybe we would need more evidence just to back up so, um, the, the epigenetic mechanisms that we've already found in other animal models because it seems that uh, sometimes it, it, people are drawing too, um, too quick conclusions and I'm not sure if they are completely backed up by the evidence so I, I, I understand the environmental side it's just that I also understand when people, for example, in evolutionary biology, dismiss it a little bit 
uh, or when at least applied to certain species like ours? I don't know. Yeah, I think we have to be careful. I mean, you the the measures of uh, epigenetic regulation are advancing so fast, and there's so many of them. Of course, you know, people are looking at methylation because it's easy and uh, relatively cheap and so forth. But, you know, there's many other mechanisms, you know, histone bundling and DNA folding and on and on and on it goes. And the example I just used of even RNA is now, well, so... Uh, let's not get breathless about it. And, and I, unfortunately, some of the popularization has happened too quickly. You know, the genie in my genes kind of uh, uh, stuff, which sells books. And it's fine. It's fine. But it's not by scientists who are writing this. It's by popularizers. Mm -hmm. I think when, you, I mean, what, what is unquestionable is that environment and behavior uh, impacts uh, epigenetic processes that impact uh, gene expression. The issue is when you go across uh, generations. Uh, and and, and they, in human models, you're, you're raising specifically, there's no doubt I think, that it's very active. You know, as I say, just the conversation we're having right now, if we just did oral swabs and did a full kind of epigenomic analysis, if we have a bad conversation, a good conversation, it's, it's gonna alter your epigenetic regulation of stress-related gene systems, for example. Uh, just too much evidence uh, on that. To, to, but is that going to impact your children? Well, we're way ahead of that. It's very, you know, on fruit flies, you can, the, the, the speed allows you to look at these things. The speed with humans is so slow. So you have to use natural preparations like the Dutch winter cohort, for example, or, uh, you know, people who survived the Holocaust or, you know, so, and these are very crude kind of ways to look at things. But yeah, yeah, maybe that's a good example. A little, but just for follow through, wouldn't it be a little remarkable if over and over again, species by species, you showed that some, not all, of just the few epigenetic channels that we've looked at appeared to a degree to go across generations. And then suddenly, what, we're so great, we're so grand, it doesn't apply to us? I mean, why? because we're the social monkeys. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me that suddenly a line would be drawn and say, no, but now how? But, but frankly, uh, in a way, it doesn't matter for the immediate implications. If you can allow me just a metaphor, maybe it's a loose one that's like, in a way, it doesn't matter if global warming is human caused, humans have to do something about it now, right? I mean, because we're just not gonna let Florida go underwater. Or maybe we're stupid enough, we will, and we have a, anyway, let's not get into politics. But, but uh, if you start looking at this, for example, as a psychotherapist might, am I interested in whether or not, oh, let's say, you know, like some of these early data that, you know, what your grandfather ate might influence your likelihood of getting diabetes. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, in the same way that I'm very interested in your... Uh, genetic loading and the degree to which it predicts uh, psychopathology and especially if it moderates and sort of suggests that different things might be done because i'm not just interesting in labeling and saying whoops sorry you got the bad ones yeah i'm interested in doing something about it and helping humans prosper just as i would with physical disease same thing because you have risk doesn't mean that you can't alter the risk factors within your lifespan but 
so you take something like up and down regulation of uh, gene systems that to the extent that we know what they do, and let's be honest, we, we're really, really early on lots of that. We know it has something to do with stress-related responsivity. Well, that gives you a little bit of guide. You don't want to, you know, it, it's not that stress per day is bad. It looks like it's more stress reactivity that's bad. I mean, what do we, you're doing, what you and I are doing right now might be called stressful. Uh, but to me, it's an opportunity for, for you. It's an opportunity. It doesn't, it's not going to land uh, on you in the same way that if it was like, oh, my God. I mean, back when I had a panic disorder, part of my individual story, this would land in a very different way. Because right about now, I'd be panicking. Um, so, but these systems of mobilizing to deal with threat, for example, and to be able to run and fight and hide uh, are, are themselves regulated. So we can take advantage of the science of epigenetics and, uh, and the emerging and, and look at its implications for what we do. Uh, I think we're not very far away, for example, by being able to look at epigenetic measures as part of the outcome measures in routine randomized trials of psychotherapy. I mean, I'm doing big randomized trials right now where people are raising the conversation. How much would it take for us to be doing regular uh, assessment of methylation of stress-related gene systems? That makes perfect sense to me whether or not it goes across generations. So let's not get breathless, but let's not be afraid. And let's apply what we know in responsible ways and do the hard work uh, to, I mean, extended evolutionary synthesis really, when you really think about it, it means you have a multidimensional, multi-level uh, system that is involves uh, recursive, nonlinear processes. And, you know, we're talking now about complex networks and dynamical systems. Even the stats to be able to do it is hard. Some of the things you need are not even there. So, you know, take a deep breath, tighten your belt, and let's get going and, uh, and nibble away at how to think about things in that level of complexity where variation, selection, and retention processes are applying to multiple dimensions simultaneously at multiple levels simultaneously, what David's known for. And that's true within your lifespan. It's true across lifespans. And, and I think it's pretty clear the two interact. At least in animal models, it's undoubt. It, it's absolutely. I mean, back to Waddington, et cetera. But going forward, I mean, it's not, it, in terms of just genetic accommodation and so forth, environment behavior is up and down regulating processes that uh, that impact that. So the the old kind of evolutionary science that really cartoon version, I'm sorry I have to be offensive, but the genes maybe do it. That's bullshit. The, the genes don't code directly for phenotypes, except in context and often as massive uh, systems. And, you know, I mean, if you just take height, you know, you get 724 uh, loci so far, and, and it accounts for about 10% of your variation. You know, I mean, come on, height. Uh, or, or I'm on a bit of a ramp, but let me just say, I mean, look at the one that just came out in, uh, it was either PLOS One or PNAS with uh, all the can candidate genes, the major candidate genes for major depression, 13 of them, with up to 300,000 full genomic analyses. And then as a control condition, a random selection of 13 genes.
the degree to predict major depressive disorder was identical between those two sets. That means we have a shocking amount of ignorance, number one, going on. We have to be real careful. You talk about getting breathless too quickly. I mean, as soon as somebody finds a, a genetic marker for something, ah, they're running out. No, let's get it replicated. Let's do the proper controls. And, and I think we're now at a point where we have to say we have a much more complex problem in front of us just in understanding the genetics, now epigenetics, now environment, behavior, symbotypes, uh, you know, cultural factors. Yipes. But, isn't, but part of that yipes is how cool. How cool is that? That maybe we can get under the consilience provided by an evolutionary umbrella all these different sciences, including the behavioral sciences, on board? That would be awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, there are several questions there that, that I could ask you, but since we're talking about genetics and epigenetics, I guess that another thing that we could bring to the table is the discoveries that people have done uh, in in behavioral genetics because I guess that for example when people go and study thousands and millions of uh, pairs of twins fraternal and, and identical twins and then they they replicate it one and two and three and ten times and they always get the result that for example there are certain uh, psychological traits that are uh, 40 to 50 percent uh, irritable and the rest is basically uh, the, the shared environment and the non-shared envi environment of course no one is saying that genetics uh, in any case predicts 100% of the variation, but at least even if we don't know yet the precise genes that account for the 40 or 50% of the variation or whatever, whatever that is. I'm not going to give you those percentages. I think there's a big methodological error in that whole area. Oh, really? Yes, a very ser serious methodological error, in my opinion. I mean, if, if you're doing experimental analysis of uh, behavioral genetics, which is now we're talking animal models, and we can really get down to the specific genes involved and the specific environmental things and you're manipulating them, then I'm down to that. Most of what you're talking about in terms of present is the classic G plus E plus G times E formulations in twin studies. And you know, you, you know that in the early twin studies, they didn't even keep track of whether or not the fraternal twins were the same gender. That then changed because people said, oh my goodness, that would mean any gender bias is part of the G. That's not right. I mean, duh. You just look at the cultural landing in terms of genetic bias, anybody looking at that would say, that's a very bad idea to take all of that and call it, why? And, but understand the principle, and then I'm going to make it more specific. Um, uh, the principle is, in these very early studies, the big, big uh, error was, is to think that consistencies in the environment don't exist beyond reared together, reared apart, and all those kinds of things. I mean, if you're a female, you're walking around being a female everywhere. And if there's bias in the culture, it's everywhere. And that's exactly what the cultural thing shows. Okay, so you sweep that away. So now we've got it solved. No, you don't. 
Well, what else? Okay, I'll, I'll name one. The single biggest demographic factor known in all of psychology is what? It's physical attractiveness. Mm. Go look. It's physical attractiveness. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you're homely, you're ugly, you're not attractive, that's true everywhere you go. All of that is loaded as G. We know it's not G. How do we know that? There's randomized trials of plastic surgery. And all of the factors that are profound, I mean, you're a relatively attractive dude. You are, you are advantaged. You have privilege from that. You don't even know about it. You do. But people will talk to you. They will hire you. And there's this weird set of findings. Like, for example, if you're attractive, you'll stay in therapy longer, but you're more likely to be hired. You'll make more money. You're less likely to be arrested. If you go into jail, you'll get out earlier. While you're in jail, you'll be said to have uh, fewer problems. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. And when you do the controlled studies, you say, oh, is that because they're actually behaving poorly? No, it's because people bring their cultural expectations to people who are beautiful or attractive or ugly. All of that is called G. It's not G. It's a yes, yes, it is G in this sense. It's a genetic input to a psychosocial process. So here's the problem. When you say 50% and you're saying to policymakers and so forth, you better, you better understand that what they think you mean. And when I get a behavior dentist in the corner and I have an hour to talk to them, they always admit what I'm saying is true. They admit it. They know that that formula does not go down to the level of process. It's a mathematical input to output that could occur through other processes, such as cultural processes. But you say it to the public, you say it to policymakers, and they say, oh, well, intelligence is the 50 X percent genetic. You don't know that. If, if it's true with, uh, with gender, and it's true with physical attractiveness, and by the way, I don't see the controls. Do you see them in the twin studies? Are people controlling for physical attractiveness? Identical twins are called identical for a freaking reason. They look similar, right? Of course you can have an injury, you can have an accident, and it can change it, but they're not controlling for that either. And all it gets loaded over in the G factor, and you don't get a chance for the real process to play. Well, if that's, you know, when I've said this to folks, they say, oh, but that's so unlikely that this thing I'm looking at could be influenced by attractiveness. Dude, it's a methodological point. If you, if you show it once, you show it twice, now you have to show me that there's no third variable that could function similarly. Upper body strength. You don't know what upper body strength does. Upper body strength might have all kinds of effects as to whether or not you get invited to play games at the playground. It has very, you know, is that genetic? Yes. Is that mechanism genetic? Maybe not. I mean, I've got a little guy who's turning 14 who has a muscle disorder. And when he was three and a half, would come home crying that nobody wanted to pick him for the soccer team. Mm -hmm. You're telling me that didn't have an impact on his life? I'm about to go down and play with his friends with the boats and stuff. And I know he's excluded because he cannot do sports. And it, it doesn't. So rant over, but point made. If I'm missing it, explain to me why. Uh, I like the name. Do you call it the dissenter? I'm a dissenter. <laughs> I like the name. And if I'm wrong, explain me why I'm wrong. The, the studies are not adequate. 
The experimental behavior genetics with animal models, yes, where you get specific gene systems and good measurement of environment, then I'm down to that. But an extended evolutionary synthesis to really work has to have that. And twin studies were like this poor, sad attempt. I mean, I respect the people doing it, but it's sad in the sense that it's like you're trying to get to a question that you really can't get to that way. It's the only way you can do it, and it's the best you can do, but it, and sorry, it's not good enough. And I think it's played badly in our world because it's led people to settle into these formulas where they say, oh, 50% is this. That's just not true. It's false. It's, at least it's not known to be true. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you take some, I'm on a rant now, IQ, you know, you move from the south to the north, the old data on moving to the south to the north and the big impact that it had on African-American populations in terms of their IQ. Well, give me the genetic explanation of that and to say, oh, that's the shared environment. No, maybe the whole darn thing. Did you control for skin color? Did you just say African-American or did you actually photograph how dark that skin was? I could show you how dark the skin was. I mean, this is why in fake news kind of stuff, outlets or, or you know, they darken the skin of, of black people or brown people to make them seem scarier when they're trying to argue against their political beliefs. They know. Do the behavioral genetics control for that in the twin studies? Often they don't. They're categories of ethnicity. That's not enough. So, uh, I'm off to something that doesn't really have to do with my work, except as a little behaviorist off in the corner who really does care about evolutionary thinking and thinks of himself as an evolutionist. I get concerned about uh, how easily we've taken answers like that and, and how they've landed in people's lives and in the culture. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, now let's move on to maybe talk about... Uh, behaviorism and how yeah. the and how the behaviorist approach has changed basically since Skinner, right? Because I I think in mainstream psychology it's not that popular of an approach nowadays, and uh, and it still has a history since Skinner that many people don't know about so if you could tell us about that yeah. and, and then and then maybe we could get into more specific issues about how it is applied in therapy through cognitive behavioral therapy and then your specific therapy that you've developed uh, acceptance okay. and commitment therapy so i'll see if i could do it without rants uh, ricardo because obviously my rants uh, will eat the time but yeah you know uh, I'm a neo-Skinner, I'm out of the Skinnerian tradition, Skinner was my hero. And what people don't realize in Skyed Skinnerian thinking is that uh, he's often used as kind of almost a cartoon version of you know, a psychology that's not interested in genetics and biology. It's so sad. I mean, his first studies were on tropism and ants. I mean, the guy was a psychobiologist, you know, Newton, he, you know respected and talked about the work of you know, people like Coe, etc. Um, he's dying a sentence. I mean, literally, the sentence he wrote before he died is variation and selection will be shown to be the most critical uh, feature of being able to make behavioral science relevant to the world or something. And it's like, you know, he tried, you know, Ed Wilson in sociobiology hits, he goes and he had that, that book, you know, his opening line is, why aren't we part of it? You know, and then next thing you know, he's explaining to Ed how everything could be an opera. 
And, and I get why. He's fighting for variation selection within the lifetime of the individual, right. thinking about that, that as being an important part. And at the time, there was so much movement against it that to say that seemed ridiculous. No, it's not life and death. It's more like strengthening a muscle, all those reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, now we know that it's actually more plausible. I mean, there's the very the things we talked about earlier. The, the thing that he wanted is he wanted to put behavioral science under an evolutionary umbrella. And, and he wanted to deal with this issue of language and cognition. He failed at both. He, and, and really what contextual behavioral science is, is an att- attempt to push a reset button, to go back and clean up some things he did and that that tradition did. One was a bit of arrogance, frankly, of, uh, you know, the purpose of science is prediction and control. No, it isn't. Don't tell scientists what to do. There are lots of scientists who don't care about that. It's fine to say your purpose is that. Uh, so it's a kind of a dogmatism, really, would be the right word for it. Right. If, if you clean that up, what you're left with is essentially pragmatism, essentially a line out of William James's work, which is a little weird for a natural scientist because you have to use a form of evolutionary epistemology that even my friend David S. Wilson won't quite do. He still wants us to really have facts out there in the world that are already there. And I always say, be careful, dude, we're interacting in with the world. I'm more down with the people who are sort of saying, you don't even see the snake. You just see an aspect of the one environment that keeps you from dying. And, you know, a different organism sees a different freaking snake. So don't be getting out your little cookie cutters and saying, that's the snake, as if it's already there in the world that way. So we're a wing that focuses on variation selection, wants to use a pragmatic truth criterion, and then cleans up the other parts. Skinner talked about prediction and, well, two things, prediction and uh, control. We used to say prediction and influence is less, but also with precision, scope, and depth. If I held a gun to your head and say, give me your wallet, I don't understand charity. I mean, it, 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 don't be thinking just control is the issue. It's the scope of it and the precision of it and the depth. Does it cohere across all these levels of analysis? There shouldn't be anything in the brain or anything in evolutionary uh, uh, genetics or anything in anthropology or sociology that's well-developed, well-understood that contradicts what's in psychology. We're seeking a unified fabric of science. If you add all that in, uh, and then I want to add in a little, a little bit of it, uh, ontological flavor don't be grabbing too much and saying and the reason why this works in the world is because and then give me some sort of description of the organization of the world noticing without noticing that those descriptions came from you interacting in and with that world you're evolving and so you have people you know like don campbell for example who i love you know Variation of selective retention, it's awesome. It's a, you know, I want to add a few things. I want in context and the right dimension level. So I want six things, not three, but we'll add context, dimension, and level to his, his big three. But when he's talking about it, he, there's places in his writing he says, and by the way, I'm specifically not applying these principles to myself as a scientist. Why? Because he realizes that there's this thing of if you look at even your knowledge claims that way, then you always have to do it with a little bit of an asterisk of what is my knowledge claim being selected by? Is it by the applause? Is it by the grant people? Is it by being able to do something? It's not your survival. 
Probably. It could be other people's survival if you do good science. Maybe good science of global warming or, you know, might help us literally survive, etc. Maybe even good science of psychology help us not, you know, nuke the planet or something. Um, so contextual behavioral science is this naturalistic, pragmatic wing that came out of the Skinnerian tradition, but is actively trying to put behavioral science under the umbrella of evolutionary thinking, what Skinner wanted to do, but did very poorly. Uh, because, frankly, part of it was just he didn't know how to make friends and didn't know how to sort of be a little more humble and think of all the different forms of knowledge out there. And that then wants to kind of pursue behavioral science with under that umbrella in this uh, prediction and influence with precision, scope, and depth way that applies to your behavior as a scientist and to all of the people that you're working with. So evolutionary epistemology is really important to me. I mean, uh, our knowing is an evolutionary process. Turns out you can turn that directly into a therapy. And what I've done that I think is helpful for that tradition is come up with an analysis of language and cognition that A, makes good evolutionary sense, B, has about three, 400 studies on it, is very precise, broad scope, fits across levels of analysis, the brain lights up in the way it should, you know, it, 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 it works across what you'd want, a, a, you know, a relatively account of, of a symbolic thinking to do. And for me, as a person who's committed with, uh, you know, prediction, influence, precision, scope and depth, you can take these principles and for example, take kids who don't have language and establish language. I can take, you know, kids who are developmentally delayed or autistic spectrum disordered kids develop their language profoundly. We can raise the IQ in randomized trials, even of people your age. We can uh, do implicit measures of cognition. We can uh, change sense of self. We can create a psychotherapy. Well, there's not many accounts of language out there that can do that or have even tried to do that. And in fact, I can't think of another one that can and has tried. I'm sorry that sounds prideful, but I do think when I'm dead and gone, if people realize what's how it lands, I mean, we're off in a little corner of the world, as you said, nobody cares about the behaviorists anymore, except therapists. So, you know, if, if, if you're going, if you have misery in your life, now you suddenly care about the therapist, the behaviorists. I mean, even the, anyway, but um, I think when I'm dead and gone, the relational frame theory has more of a chance of lasting than acceptance and commitment therapy because if it's right we have in our hands a relatively adequate relatively of course it'll be shown to be wrong but it's just a start account of symbolic thinking language and cognition that uh, allows you to do what you want from a relatively adequate theory from an evolutionary point of view from a pragmatic behavioral point of view and uh, so that's exciting to me that maybe maybe we're adding something. Mm -hmm. uh, but but uh, I mean, because people might not be familiar with relational frame theory and acceptance and commitment therapy, could you please yeah. explain to us what it's really about, how you, how you apply it, and maybe give us a couple of illustrative examples of mental conditions and how you train people to sure. cope with them and things like that. Sure. I think I can put, I can even do, I think, RFT, relational frame theory, into a one or two minute thing. 
I mean, the core of it is instead of thinking of language and cognition as associative, you think of it as relational. Mm-hmm. And but what what's the difference? I mean, association is a relation, but it's not in animal models bidirectionals. Yeah, you can get backward conditioning. It's very weak. If you get two or three steps, it disappears. Uh, but relational learning, which we're spectacularly good at, uh, there's an article, mainstream uh, article in behavioral brain science from. 15 years ago called Darwin's big mistake that walks through how spectacularly we good good we are at relational learning but not applying it to cognition the claim is is that even with a single word because of how cooperative we are we created a two-way street and the example I always use is even if if you have a a band or a, a troop of uh, human beings or hominins it, it probably goes back before uh, uh, you know homo sapiens uh, if if you had a characteristic uh, sound, gesture, something, I'll call it a name, just so we know what we're talking about for an object, which many, many non-human animals have. See the eagle squeak, see the snake hoot, etc. Um, in the presence then of that characteristic uh, sign or sound or gesture, would you orient towards the object? Will it give you a two-way street? Mm-hmm. In human beings, uh, that happens around 12 months old. If you don't do that, you don't develop human language. I mean, you're on the, you're headed towards severe developmental disability. That's exactly what we can help correct with relational frame theory, by the way. Some of those kids, not all, some are just not neurobiologically intact enough to do it. Some, once you understand the unit, you can train it, you can build it out. Uh, but in, for example, the so-called language trained chimpanzees, mm-hmm. study by uh, uh, Fergus Lowe, the late Fergus Lowe and Neil Dugdale with uh, those at uh, Duane Runbaugh's and Sue Savage Runbaugh's uh, troop uh, in Atlanta. When you flipped it and asked the chimpanzee, okay, here's with a new one, here's an object, here's the, in, that, in this case, plastic chip. Now, given the plastic chip, will you orient towards the object? The answer was no, chance level. And there's no examples that are replicable and really powerful of, of, with non human species. So, Relational learning is more, the way I describe it, it's more like the relations in your family. And if, if you had a big family gathering and you think of how many different relations are there, I mean, the cousin of, father of, married to, on and on it goes, each of those, beginning with a bidirectional two-way street of names, but then quickly, by the time you're 16 months old, you'll get exclusion. If you hear an unfamiliar name, you look around, you see familiar objects except for one unfamiliar object. You'll assume that this relates to that in a go in a name of or coordination with, and you'll derive it bidirectionally. Very quickly, it gets along a dimension. You can talk about op- opposites. You know, warm is the opposite of cool, but boiling is the opposite of freezing. So you, you learn to take difference and put it along a dimension. You start doing comparatives. A nickel is smaller than a dime in American coinage. In your coinage, it probably have similar things. The euros, for example. Mm-hmm. three-year-olds love coins they can buy candy with them they always want the big ones physically big four or five-year-olds flips over so you have these arbitrary relations of comparison once i've got that i can problem solve because all i need to problem solve is uh, an object name with attributes the relation to before and after or, can, or uh, uh, time a contingency and the ability to evaluate and compare well, six-year-olds will commit suicide, and they'll say, I'll be better off dead. And it's a very simple problem. 
Well, in the first act book, the first sentence was, a six-year-old threw herself in front of a train today. It was in New York. The authorities said her mother had died of a terminal illness. So you, you think about that. This very anti-life thing. What species would do that? Kill yourself on purpose? Yeah, because we're the species that have enough relations, not associations, that's not how it works, to be able to say, mom's gone, that's sad. If I die, I'll be in heaven with her, that's better. Mm-hmm. And deliberately take your own life. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, what the, the implications of it in terms of act one is you start doing the math of how many things can relate to other things that you already know about. In workshops, I, I give the challenge, think of a noun or, or a verb, think of a noun or a verb, I'll come up with a relation, everybody in here, we have to come up with an answer. And so I'll, I'll say, okay, say your word, and then I'll say, and my relation is, is the father of, I'll pick something, and then they'll say the next word. Always they come up with an answer. Always it's apt. Always it's cool. It often makes people laugh. Well, that means we can, with symbolic learning, relate everything to everything else in all possible ways. Mm-hmm. That Well, that means you right now. We did the math on this. Actually, this came out of Terry Deacon's work on the symbolic species where he showed that if, if you could relate all objects to all names and all relations in all ways, and you had eight named objects, or eight objects with a symbolic event going with it, you'd have 4,000 derived relations. Okay, when I do the math of the possible things that you could relate, you start getting things like more than molecules in the universe. So, back to therapy. You're gonna clean that up Really? <laughs> you know, have you ever worked with somebody with OCD? You ever worked with somebody who's paranoid? I mean, our flexibility is amazing. Variation selection, our capacity for variation. But our domination by symbolic learning over other processes is amazing too. Witness jumping in front of a train when you're six years old. That dominates over things that really should stop that. I mean, this is too basic a function to allow to happen. No, it isn't this evolutionary recent adaptation of symbolic learning will dominate over everything. And so what we've done in ACT is yeah, we will do some things on trying to create more cognitive flexibility and help people think better, maybe you could say. But our dominant focus is on backing up a little bit and regulating the impact of these relations and allowing people to focus towards what brings meaning and purpose into their life what are the selection criteria? And then organize your behavior around that. So instead of, for example, thought action, like that, where the domination of uh, thought has people doing things that are unhealthy. How? What's an example? Okay, here's one. You start feeling anxious, you evaluate it as bad, then obviously you should stop trying to feel, you should stop being anxious. Maybe you should uh, self-soothe in some way. You should avoid the situations that make you anxious. Maybe you should take a tranquilizer, drink a beer. Maybe you should deny that you're anxious. You should talk yourself out of it. You should have a safety signal. You shouldn't go to, but do you hear what's happening here? As a panic disordered person in recovery, these are processes like avoiding 
anxiety because anxiety is bad. That means anxiety is something to make you anxious because there's something that's bad about is about to happen. We're evolutionarily prepared to respond to that. We have to because we have to mobilize to fight or to run or do something. Well, now you're running from your own history. You're running from your memories of traumas. You're running from your own biological uh, arousal systems that you label with emotional labels and then evaluate as bad. You've got self-amplifying loops in there now. And you think in terms of an extended evolutionary synthesis, you don't want self-amplifying loops that aren't linked to what you really want to have happen with the whole of the system. Because it captures part of the system and distorts it. And that's what we call mental health problems. And so we take and put in cognitive processes that help us so metaphorically, I say it metaphorically, but then I can do it technically, back up from the voice within, the formulation, to notice it and to diminish the automatic uh, responsivity to it. And then teach skills of orienting towards the events in our internal and external world that we can uh, uh, situate our next action in, situated in context, and teach skills like, for example, acceptance skills, not tolerance, not resignation, but being open to the emotional flow of life, or what we call diffusion skills, which is being able to notice thought the way you'd notice a flower mm-hmm. and understand its meaning but then make some choices about whether or not to be guided by that. Uh, Those two skills, acceptance and cognitive diffusion, correlate with almost every psychopathology you can name. And when you get them changed, they they predict positive trajectories in almost any area you can name. And it turns out that it's not just ACT. I mean, the mindfulness people, some of our spiritual religious traditions have been doing this from right along. Cognitive behavior therapy, who knew? I mean, it sounded like what you needed to do is stop thinking bad things and start thinking good things. It turns out what actually mediates that, the functionally important pathway to change, is just the first part that the cognitive therapist taught, which was to back up and to notice. They called it distancing, to notice your thoughts with a sense of equanimity before you're getting into challenging and changing. That has a profound effect on behavioral variation and it allows selection to begin happening more towards what you want rather than doing what your mind tells you to do, which is you have to run away really well or fight really well before you get to do what you want. That's not true. You can be anxious and do lots of cool things. Uh, you could, I mean, I, hell, I just gave ACT workshops in the early days having panic attacks during the workshop. You know, your mind says you can't do that. You know, the, the words say you can't do that. Of course you can do that. Non-human animals... You know, they break legs and still they act as if it's nothing. You know, you have to, if you have a horse, you know that. You know, do you, you better get him to the vet because the horse will try to run with a broken leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will whimper at the very thought of you know something might be painful. So, the places where actors had a big impact are areas like that: chronic pain, anxiety, substance use, places where small aspects of the whole, especially emotional and cognitive, lead to variation selection processes that dominate over all of you in a way that creates an adaptive peak, basically, where there's no farther you can go. There's no amount of drugs you can consume or avoidance of emotions you can do that will take you towards the kind of life you want to live. So 
acceptance and commandment theory is essentially applied evolutionary thinking, I think. And um, I think the day will come where we think of all of psychotherapy that way, and it'll change some of our practices because some of them are not don't make sense from an evolutionary point of view. Mm-hmm. So just to make this clear, this is really not about trying to eliminate thought processes or even the underlying psychological mechanisms that give rise to these thoughts, like, for example, anxiety and sadness and things like that. I mean, things that to which we associate something negative usually, because, I mean, those are still useful psychological mechanisms to have operating in our minds. It's much more about trying to distancing oneself from them when they are already affecting our lives uh, negatively and trying to 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 deal with them in a more positive and productive way something yeah, like exactly that. right exactly right and it's why the work and act and its sister technologies of uh, acceptance and mindfulness work generally has pretty much gone beyond mental health problems to behavioral health problems because it turns out same kind of processes happen with things like diet, exercise, stepping up to the challenge of cancer, diagnosis, etc. But now also into social processes, prejudice, stigma, and into you know, you know violence between groups and into things that are surprising to me, you know, like uh, sports performance, the ability to run your business. And why? Because I think it's because the logical, reasonable, sensible things that our symbolic learning processes tell us to do are not always the healthy things that move the whole of us towards what we really want. And when you back up and you think about these variation selection processes as multidimensional and multi-level, you know, being able to sort of rein in what I think is a kind of selfishness, really. Uh, you know, the classic multi-level selection work on if you allow selfishness to happen in a group, it undermines uh, the cooperation in the group. I mean, it's it's why, you know, cooperation is almost, and altruism has almost always been uh, questioned when you have a a more evolutionary account. Uh, David's book, Does Altruism Exist, explains why. No, if it's multi-level, it's not that hard to think about. And actually, you can do the same thing with kin selection and so forth. I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but, well, the parts of you within are also things that can be selfish. That you know that with your cells, you got 37 trillion cells. If any one of them just decides it's going to just replicate, replicate, you got cancer. And and you've and and you know, multi-level systems only work when you can detect selfishness of smaller units. Allow them to be successful as part of the larger collective, but rein in their selfishness up to the point of actually expelling them from the group if they won't cooperate. That's Lynn Ostrom stuff. It's what your body does with cancer cells. You know, if you have a healthy immune system, you will go kill or you try to change the transcription errors that lead to cancer, etc. Uh, you know, you've got evolved systems to keep that selfishness from happening. Psychologically, this new kid on the block of thought allows just part of us to take over the whole of us and that's selfishness because if you sort of think about that almost as if yeah we have cells within we also have repertoires within mm-hmm. what is selfishness of a repertoire claiming more time and attention than its utility deserves same thing with cells is i want that cell to be fed but i don't want it to claim more of my resources than its utility 
deserves and it becomes a tumor, frankly, it's no longer helping me as an organism. It's no longer playing nice with being organized. And I want to kill you, you know. You see what I'm saying? Well, the same thing with these repertoires. This part of this that says, oh, no, you can only live when you get rid of that emotion. Well, this is a voice within. And it's kind of a natural, sensible, of course, kind of common sense extension of being able to problem solve, to evaluate and compare, to know that a nickel is actually smaller than a dime. And that same repertoire can say, you know, I can't have this emotion, or I can say to, you know, somebody uh, who is very, very rich. Uh, what was that movie recently? The the guy who was the richest man in the world at the time, J.P. Morgan. You know, they asked him, "What does he need to be happy?" And he says in the movie, "More." <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, that's selfishness of him. Yes, obviously, mm-hmm. but that's selfishness of a part of him. We have some data with the RFT labs. Your speed of being able to react to more and less, your dominance of that comparison predicts unhappiness. You don't want to be doing more and less all the time. You've got to let go of more and less. If, if, if you've got a girlfriend and you come into that interaction completely thinking about more and less, are you doing enough for me? You need to do more for me? You just, good luck, dude. You know, this relationship is in real trouble. I get we need equitable distribution of costs and benefits, but you can feel that there's a selfishness within of of these mental health problems. And and not just that, of the things that lead to social problems or our own limitations. So when you rein that in, you have a capacity to be with yourself as a whole person and to pick your battles, to put your behavior into the life you kind of want to, you want to live, the whole of you, not just part of you. Uh, when you live and die, the whole of you lives and dies. It's not just your ego, it's not just your story, it's not just your emotions, it's not just your memories, it's not just this particular cell or that particular gene, the whole of you. Let's put into our mental life processes that are respectful of that. and. That's what ACT tries to do, of saying, okay, let's back up from the automatic reaction to thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations. Try to pick our reactions to fit what we want for the whole of us. What is that? What are your values? What are the qualities of your behavior that you want to put into the world? Not your goals, that's important. Not just your goals, that's important. But it's important more as a values-based journey because you don't know, maybe you want to achieve your goals, but you can always live your values. You know, this is kind of... uh, uh, you know, kind of a nerve yalom or, a, uh, you know, kind of Victor Frankl kind of deal. You can be a concentration camp to be living your values. And so we teach people how to orient towards their values and put their behavior there. When you do that, well, when you do that, your whole body starts reacting differently. These epigenetic systems start changing. People start staying forward and doing great things. Stress turns into an opportunity. This conversation is not a horrible stress thing. It's an opportunity. Is my body reacting as yours? Yeah, but not in ways that we have to eliminate, etc. So I think we can pr- put that into the world, and that's what ACT's trying to do. I'm less concerned about ACT as a technology, frankly. All these things have a half-life that'll pass away. But the idea that acceptance, mindfulness, and values is important will not pass away. The 
the processes are too important. And they're in our wisdom traditions, our spiritual traditions. In the modern world, we have to put them into our healthcare system and our cultural systems because, you know, it's not only going to go out through religion. Religion is weakening, frankly, around the world and the developing world. And so uh, we try to do that with the ACT work and the contextual behavioral science work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we don't have much more time left. Let me just ask you one last question. So um, when is it precisely that these normal relational processes and mechanisms that we have operating in our minds uh, get into a point where uh, they become a full-fledged mental disease or mental disorder? Because uh, as we've been talking about, I mean, these things that we feel, our negative and positive feelings, things that attract us to something in the world or, or that make us avoid other things. I mean, those are all useful, normal mechanisms that we have operating in our minds. There's nothing wrong with that. But is, is it the case that it then turns into something that we should deal with seriously when it starts affecting or preventing us from functioning normally in our lives is something like that or, or what? yeah i think so i probably be careful about functioning normally just because that word norm because in oh, your okay. ideographic path you know and uh, we need to be careful you know averages are not people and processes of change or, or i mean you know those data uh, how many different ways organisms can achieve ends i mean toddlers have something like 50 different ways of learning to walk and we went in and did some harm by saying normally it's like this and then just actually look at how people children, some scoot on their butt some crawl for a long time don't be telling parents that if you don't do it by this you know so it, it isn't a matter of norm it's a matter of of uh, functional impact can we empower people to step forward and a lot of what we call mental health problems are dominated by normal psychological processes with a combination of probably genetic factors, other factors that make a particular form of adaptation uh, unhealthy with these normal processes. I'll give you an example. You know, just take something like schizophrenia, chronic mental illness, severe mental illness. Almost anyone believes this has to be pretty heavily biological. Okay, perhaps, but let's look at some things. If you move in age, let's say four to six or, or three to six, somewhere in there, to a, a different country with a new language, you're now 60% more likely to develop uh, schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. But what happens there? Sense of self, you know, if you can't even be understood, if it hits you at the wrong time, man, that is one of the most stressful things known to, to the human body because it produces a kind of aloneness we're the social monkeys. We're, you can't take us out of a social context and have us function well. I mean, deprivation, abuse, you know, things that happen in these early ages. Well, I know the parent wasn't trying to abuse the child by moving him to a safer country, let's say, but the shock to our system just biologically is so profound. And it isn't by accident that all of the normal medications that are used as so-called antipsychotics were vetted in animal models by medica you know, medications, chemicals that uh, did not 
reduce escape, but did reduce avoidance. That was the filter. And so, you know, and you look at these experiential avoidance processes to become very dominant. So that's a normal process. You just said so. Normal in the sense that we all have that process, right? Yeah, but in combination with other things, perhaps a, a genetic risk factor. Oh, I'll give you another one. A risk factor and things that have happened developmentally at the wrong time. That same process could kick off something that, man, looks like, whoa, as part of a complex system. So it isn't just the gene. Ha- you know, there's, we have full genomic analyses now. We know that none, none of the DSM do- disorders have a simple, none have biomarkers, none. And none have a, that, are, that are sensitive and specific. And none have a simple uh, genetic uh, mark. We're working on it. I, I used that example of major depression when I started the earlier conversation. Does anyone believe that genes aren't part of mental health problems? I believe they're part of it. Of course it is, but it's a complex system. Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, uh, there, there are just example after example after example with things like trauma and things like that where normal psychological processes, so-called normal, are pathological. And in the modern world, here's what we've done. And maybe this is a place I know we're coming close to the top of the hour and maybe we'll have to wrap it up soon. Mm-hmm. In the modern world, you know, why are we seeing these spectacularly increasing levels of uh, mental health problems in the developing world? You know, young people are, you know, they're a standard deviation, more stressed, depressions, and, and anxious than they were 30 years ago. And you can't say, oh, it's just the, just the self-report instruments. No, dude, it's dead bodies. It's suicide by adolescence. Just look at the suicide rates. Don't be telling me it's a self-report. People are killing themselves at rates that are far beyond anything we've seen before. Something's going on. Yes, but what we put into the world through science and technology, through this creativity of you know, the symbolic learning stream, being able to do what you and I are doing right now. I mean, look at what we're doing, dude. We're talking thousands of miles away. You know, we can see each other in real time. I mean, God, is that amazing? Yeah, but you can see on your little computer in your pocket called your iPhone, horror around the world. If somebody, you know, blows up a building or throws their children off a bridge, you can see it. You can even see it live. Some of these guys put the, the Go camera on there and start shooting children and stream it live. Your children are gonna see that. I was sitting in my chair and my son, who's now uh, uh, older, but he said, what is that, daddy? And I looked and it was a picture of a burning body on a street as part of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And, the, and my son at the time was three. Mm-hmm. I, I go like, ah, what is that, daddy? Really? It's the, and, so you've got horror. You've also got comparison. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you know Franz de Waals, one with the with the cucumber chips versus the grapes. You know that famous one. I mean, and, and non-human primates. Comparison is not. You don't want to be on the short end of the stick, right? Right. And you've got this constant flow of judgment. Well, those three things produce a kind of aloneness. And so the, in the modern world, we've got 
people feeling as though they're all alone. Look at the rates of aloneness, of loneliness in our big cities with people walking past each other in the crosswalk, but their eyes don't even meet. You know, and going back to their little apartment, you know, and ordering the food to be brought in from their iPhone. I mean, they don't even have to go to the grocery store anymore. That was not possible in tribal societies. And so I think we need to think about how we create psychological processes that help us step into the modern world. This book that I have coming out called A Liberated Mind walks through the data on that of how profoundly the world has changed over the last 20 or 30 years and how profoundly we're going to have to change our cultural and mental processes to keep up with it in a world in which exposure to horror, judgment, and comparison is as common as breathing. Mm -hmm. We better get modern minds for this modern world or we are going to see those suicide rates just keep going like that. And... uh, and who knows what what's happening with these kind of you know conflicts between peoples and so forth? I mean, shouting at immigrant children, "Go back, go home!" You know, what are you doing, dude? Um, can I do I have time to put that together? I know. I'm yeah, a- sure, sure, yeah. Okay, we've done some research showing that. Caring about people, enjoying being with people, and not judging people is predicted by three things in both cases enjoying being with people and not judging people in this harsh uh, stigmatizing way Uh, we call it the flexible connectedness model and here's what it requires i have to take your perspective and that requires certain kind of cognitive skills building out these theory of mind skills we come into human condition with but these I, you, here, there, and now, then relational phenomena. We know it in relational frame theory that where we can teach children who don't have perspective taking skills and teach it to them. You have to have perspective taking. You have to have some empathy. Mm-hmm. Once you're behind the eyes of the other, you have to have some emotional response, some sort of that has something to do with what's going on. We're biologically prepared to do that, mirror neurons and all the rest. But we have to build that out in, the natu- in our modern world where we're constantly being exposed to horror. And then this last one that is not yet in the cultural conversation, that's in that book I have coming out. You have to not run away when it's hard. If you don't know how to sit inside pain in a way that's healthy and allows you to maintain your sense of consciousness and values and focus on what matters, what you're going to do is you're going to say, that's them. You're going to do this ancient biological deal of the group matters. That's what those adults were doing, screaming at the immigrant children. Maybe you don't know this story that happened in Arizona a couple of years ago. Get out, get out to four-year-olds. Because if I can make you other, if I can dehumanize you, then I don't have to feel your pain. And so those three, perspective-taking, empathy, and experiential avoidance. That's what predicts. And what we haven't put in the world is that last one. The camera can put perspective taking in the world. You can see the bloated body of the three-year-old that fell out of the boat that the Syrian refugees were trying to get out of a war zone. You can see it. The camera will show you the tears of the mother speaking in foreign language, but man, you're going to respond to it. You're going to tear up seeing that. But what the camera cannot do and what we must put into human culture 
is learning how to sit with what's hard and focus on our values and to put that that uh, empathetic reaction in a place that isn't this objectification and dehumanization place, but this place that allows us to connect with others and to care about them and, and to enjoy being with them. We get something out of it. We decrease our own aloneness when we do that. Bigots are not happy people. They feel alone. They, they are not. Look at the data. They're not. And they die early. The body doesn't even like it. But so that's what I'm trying to do with the ACT stuff is I don't want to just do a psychotherapy. I want to put processes into the world that help us connect with each other and support each other and build, uh, build a world to build a world that is steps up to the challenge of things like the, the immigrants fleeing wars. We, if we can't do that, uh, good luck. Good luck, uh, because the modern world uh, will produce a kind of selfishness and alienation and aloneness that uh, will harm us all. Yeah, okay, so maybe we would end on that note then. Uh, we don't have more time left, unfortunately, also. So, uh, Dr. Hayes, before we go, would you like to tell people what would be some of the best places on the internet for them to find your work? And I will also leave, of course, links to your books, for example, in the description box of the video. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of things that are free. We've tried to do things in ways that don't create high barriers. There, are, If you just Google acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, um, and, and you uh, you could do it with, with uh, my name. I mean, you will find websites and all of that. And yeah, some of these things involve selling, but you'll also find things like, you know, a, a public group called Act for the Public of several thousand people who are reading these books. A lot of them are available, very low cost. You know, my first book for 12 bucks. I mean, it's, you can find, more, frankly, you can find pirated versions on the internet. I don't care about the money, but but do take seriously the science of psychological flexibility and look at what's available to you within your local community, but also on the Internet. And you'll find others that are doing it. And it isn't just act and psychological flexibility. It's the mindfulness people, the acceptance people, the people trying to build bios based communities and to, you know, create cooperative systems. My colleague David Sloan Wilson and I are trying to put Lynn Ostrom's Principles Plus Act into creating pro-social groups. Go to prosocial.world and you'll see that. All free, you can, you can download and learn about how you can work with your local group, your church group, your business, whatever, to try to put these processes into the contexts that you spend a lot of your day in. It isn't just your home life and your mental health life. And um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I hope people pursue it. There's a whole community around the world uh, trying to figure out a way to put uh, more kindness and compassion into our own hearts and in the hearts of those around us. And it'll help us with our mental health problems. But frankly, beyond that, it'll help us with our uh, ability to create a kinder world. 
Okay, great. So I will also be leaving links to all of that in the awesome. description box of the interview for people to go and check it out. And Dr. Hayes, again, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show and it was a very good conversation, I think. So thank you for coming. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Hi there, thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, otherwise, I also have a PayPal and Subscribestar. And if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Ryan Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Iane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, and Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, and Ruth Gervoz, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.